one moment, a business is on top of its game, profitable and well-respected. In the next moment, it could be the victim of a major fraud with potentially catastrophic consequences, financial losses, damaged reputation, diminished stakeholder value, scrutiny, even bankruptcy. These stories are all too common in today's business headlines. While some organizations recover, others don't make it. How do you minimize the risk of fraud and avoid the devastation? Welcome to Fraud Talk with host Chris Marquet. Our goal is to prevent your organization from becoming one of the statistics. Now, here is Chris Marquet. Good morning, Fraud Talkers. I am your host, Chris Marquet, on the Voice America Online Radio Network uh, on the Business Channel. Uh, we have a great program for you today with my special guest, John Hall, who is an accountant by training and the author of the Anti-Fraud Toolkit, among many other things. And he has uh, he's currently a consultant in the area of fraud prevention and controls, consulting as well as a very well-known speaker and coach for auditors and uh, accountants and other groups seeking to improve efficiency and effectiveness in their day-to-day operations. Uh, but today, uh, before we uh, talk about uh, John and uh, and, the, and the topic, which is prevention and deterrence of white-collar frauds, uh, I want to remind everybody what our mantra is, and that is, at any time in any organization, there's always somebody who's up to no good. So we know that uh, we know that fraud is. Uh, rampant. We know it's going on every single day all around us, and uh, we are here at Fraud Talk to help uh, try to educate, inform, and otherwise help organizations uh, prevent uh, prevent themselves from becoming a victim, and hopefully perhaps even stem the tide on this fraud, this whole fraud uh, phenomenon that's going on. Uh, remember, the call-in line today is 866-472-5790. That's 866 866- 4725790 if you would like to be a uh, uh, a guest on the show to uh, ask us a question me or John today on the prevention and detection topic. Uh, you can also find us on the various uh, major um, um, social media such as Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter, and follow us on our blog, which is Fraud Talk on Blogspot, and on Twitter, it's at Fraud Talk. You can also email me directly, chris at marquetinternational.com, that's M-A-R-Q-U-E-T international.com, if you have a question, comment, or suggested fraud of the week. So, uh, my puppy in the background is uh, is uh, getting a little excited. Hopefully, uh, he'll uh, he'll chill out a little bit. But unfortunately, today I've got him in the studio with me. So <laughs> bear with me, people. Um, as we discuss the fraud of the week, uh, this week it is uh, relates to a, a major embezzlement case out of New York City, uh, in which a former controller, well, at then then controller of a New York City-based nonprofit embezzled some $1.8 million from the organization, according to uh, prosecutors. And you can read about this in the New York Times uh, just last week, an article, and I've posted this up on the Fraud Talk uh, blog. You can find it, uh, but I'll just uh, read you some excerpts from the New York Times. 
the former official of the Hereditary Disease Foundation, a New York City-based nonprofit group that supports research into genetic illness, has been charged with embezzling more than $1.8 million of the organization's funds and is using the, and used the money for personal expenses. The former official, Karen Alamandine, that's A-L-A-M-E-D-D-I-N-E, 57 years old, served as the organization's controller until she resigned this year. She had almost exclusive responsibility for overseeing various aspects of the foundation's financial affairs, the government said, including delivering grant money to researchers and paying the organization's bills. So right there, people, uh, is a major, major risk factor uh, when you have an organization where somebody's got all, uh, all aspects of the financial controls in their, in their own control, you are taking a huge risk. Uh, so, <clears throat> continuing here, the federal prosecutors in Manhattan said that in a criminal complaint, which was unsealed uh, last Tuesday, that uh, Ms. Alamandine began diverting money by disguising entries in the foundation's accounting software to make what in reality were transfers to her personal bank account appear as if they were wire or bank transfers to grant recipients. The government said Mrs. Almandine, who also went by Karen Dean, worked for the organization in recent years from her residence in Paris, California. Well, again, people, when you've got a, 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 your primary accountant working off-site, again, with access to everything, again, big risk. Please have them come into the office. It, uh, it just doesn't work very well otherwise. Continuing here, the funds she diverted went into accounts she controlled with names like Abacus Accounting, Shea Cheval Ranch, Dean and & Company, and Karen Dean Exports, uh, the complaint said. The scheme began to unwind this year, the complaint said, after Ms. Alamandine left her job and the foundation received a call from a grant recipient who said he had not received his check from the foundation. foundation said that in a statement that Ms. Almondine had served as controller from September 2005 through January 2014 and that the current controller uncovered several months ago what appeared to be fraudulent transactions. So the, uh, again, I, if I were them, and I assume they did, uh, going back in time to review this with the forensic audit uh, should go all the way back to the day she uh, began working there in 2005, because I can guarantee, uh, even if they found thus going back three years or whatever the statute might be of limitations might be, uh, the thefts uh, typically are going to go back longer than than uh, than what you would expect. The loss was con- continuing here. The loss was confirmed by a thorough internal investigations and forensic audit conducted by outside legal counsel retained immediately by the foundation. Quote the statement said. It also said that the internal investigation had determined that although the theft was substantial, only a small part of the grant monies uh, were compromised. Uh, the p- complaint says that Ms. Alamandine further concealed her fraud by, quote, creating, apparently out of whole cloth, a fictitious accounting firm named Davis and Green, based out of Washington, D.C., to prepare some of the foundation's tax returns. What chutzpah! I mean, this is great. Can you imagine? Uh, again, when she's when you've got one person in control of all aspects, you're just asking for trouble. John, I want to bring John in. John, welcome. Thanks, Chris. And, and Chris, it's really an honor to be here. I'm listening to your story of this fraud in New York, and I'm of two minds. One is to say that's unbelievable. The other one is it is absolutely 100% completely believable. And I'm, I'm making a list of kind of what I think went wrong, only knowing about what you just told me. 
Yeah, and it, it is unbelievable, but it is believable. As uh, as listeners have uh, know, I mean, these cases happen every single day. But in this case, nonprofit uh, organization that uh, you know giving out grant monies, and essentially what this woman was doing was wiring monies to herself that were otherwise supposed to go to the grant recipients. I mean, it's just, I mean, how easy is that? Uh, it's just, it's just amazing. But John, let me. I, I want to introduce you and uh, just tell our audience a little bit about you and uh, we can uh, uh, we can go into some of that case uh, after I introduce you but first uh, uh, John J Hall John is the founder and CEO of Hall consulting based in Colorado uh, and he is uh, the author of what I said, The Anti-Fraud Toolkit, and also the award-winning book, Do What You Can, Simple Steps, Extraordinary Results. John has over 35 years of senior leadership experience in multinational public accounting and consulting firms, a Fortune 100 telecommunications company, and as the founder of his own consulting training and business coach, coaching company, Hall Consulting. What is that, John? It's, it's Hall. It's, uh, um, what's, what's the website there for the company? Well, I, I've got two. They both go up into the same place. The, the first one is hallconsulting.biz, B as in boy, I-Z, hallconsulting.biz. Uh, my more recent one, and we're in the process of conversion and building out training materials and free videos and things like that, and that one right now is under johnhallspeaker.com, johnhallspeaker.com. Right. And as a speaker, that's my primary way of taking this message out to... Uh, to your listeners, to corporations, to uh, Institute of Internal Auditors chapters, to CPA firms, you name it, that's the primary delivery method today. Yeah, so let me uh, continue here. With the deep background in internal auditing practices, practical internal controls, and business risk management, John is best known as a speaker and trainer in the areas of fraud prevention, early detection, incident response, and investigation. For over 25 years, John has also acted as an advisor to governance and board oversight boards, as well as C-level executives in corporate, education, nonprofit, and government organization. He frequently presents fraud awareness and training programs to boards and their committees, management teams, and employees. John has personally led the creation and implementation of a comprehensive entity-wide anti-fraud campaigns for dozens of major and smaller organizations in the U.S. and abroad through live and recorded programs, performance coaching, and business consulting engagement. John helps clients, teams, and individual program participants, quote, one, identify and improve areas of exposure and risk, wrongdoing and fraud, to improve financial results through fraud prevention and detection controls and behaviors, and three, enhance the effectiveness and business processes and individual behavior. John holds a BS degree with highest honors in accounting from Penn State University, and he is a member of the National Speakers Association, the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants, and the Inst- Institute of Internal Otters. Welcome again, John. That's a mouthful. Thanks, Chris. That sounds like I've been busy. <laughs> you have been busy. I mean, come on. Yes, sir, uh, yes, sir. It's it's it, like I say. It's an honor having you on. And uh, what we are going to talk about today is prevention and detection. But uh, let me just ask you, John. So, how did you go? I mean, you start out as a CPA, and you've you know you you've morphed in the area of fraud prevention, and and now uh, really in leadership training and in fraud prevention training. Uh, the whole uh, that, that how did that that process of evolution occur in your career? 
Yeah, th- thanks, Chris. Let me let me do this in a, in a nutshell of three three significant pieces that led to that. Right out of school with an accounting degree into the big firm, public accounting, uh, financial statement audit environment way back in the 1970s uh, when CPA firms did pretty much nothing but audit tax and, and this thing called consulting was very, very minor at that time. So I went the audit route and uh, just purely by luck of the draw ended up being assigned to both small and large clients where we found uh, misconduct, wrongdoing, outright fraud, um, financial statement manipulation. Sometimes it was material, sometimes it was not. Just, uh, just uh, again, the luck of the draw type thing. When I converted over to the second piece uh, of my development in my career, which was the internal auditing, after about five years with the big firm, I was brought in at a smaller audit shop of about 10, and then two years later recruited to a much larger company that had an audit team of about 150. And in that second environment, we were going through a tremendous amount of business change in the late, late 1980s as technology took over, and we were downsizing without layoffs, interesting, without layoffs from about 90,000 about 40,000 headcount over five years, again, without a layoff, telecommunications company with, with big pension balances available to buy people out and retrain and things like that. What we found was that the, that a significant number of people, not most, but a significant number, were simply afraid of that change being forced on them and began to do what I would call just dumb things, and some of those dumb things morphed into stealing and, and larger-scale fraud. None of them were huge. Most of them were death by a thousand paper cuts. But I was called in to handle um, what happened, and this is where the prevention part of my career started, to go back and look at what I call the autopsy of the case, where you go back to the first day where this case began. It might have run for two months, three months, in the case of your nonprofit, Chris, story to start the hour, several years. Go back to the first day and rebuild it and see where we failed along the way, controls, leadership, tone, um, prevention controls, detective controls, and that's where I started doing more of this prevention type work. Well, I'm going to have to, we're going to have to, John, we're going to have to cut off here and and come back in two minutes. Thank you, Chris. Yep. out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Our highly competitive business world is fraught with risks and challenges. Critical business decisions must be made on a daily basis with precision when significant capital is at risk. When your organization is faced with a decision point involving opportunity and risk, consult with Marquet International, global experts in due diligence, investigations, and litigation support. Marquet International professionals assist organizations with vetting key individuals and businesses, as well as conducting sensitive employee or executive misconduct investigations. Our experts work with corporate counsel to develop facts and intelligence related to parties and circumstances in litigation, including conducting interviews, deep background investigations, and asset recovery inquiries. We are recognized in the area of fraud investigations, response and business controls consulting. When circumstances require sensitive and professional fact-finding, turn to Marquet International, world leaders in investigations and risk mitigation. Visit MarquetInternational.com or call 617-733-3304. Workplaces are only as strong as their teams. Teams are only as strong as their individual members. 
Are you seeking a better way to take your business to a higher level? We're here to help. Listen for Leading with Social-Emotional Intelligence, Building Trust Through Intentionality and Vulnerability with host Glenn Harris. Together, we'll explore the five key behaviors of a cohesive team and other concepts designed to keep your team working smarter. Tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are tuned in to Fraud Talk with Chris Marquet. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to Chris at marquetinternational.com. That's C-H-R-I-S at M-A-R-Q-U-E-T international.com. Now, back to Fraud Talk. Welcome back, Fraud Talkers. I am speaking to my special guest this week, John Hall, who is a CPA by training, but an expert in uh, fraud prevention and detection issues, as well as a well-known speaker uh, on topics of leadership, fraud prevention, and others. Uh, you can find him at johnhallspeaker.com, and uh, I encourage everybody, all of our listeners, to check him out today. Welcome back, John. How are you? Thanks, Chris. Everything's great. Good. We've been talking about a little bit about your background, and you were going through uh, a couple of areas of uh, of your evolution into the the area of uh, where you find yourself now. Uh, why, why don't you f- uh, complete that for us? Absolutely. Thank you, Chris. Um, so, so folks, I was talking again about the roots of where we started in public accounting and internal auditing, and then the third piece was as a consultant on my own, hanging out my own shingle. Um, my background in controls and financial statements and then in fraud detection, a little bit of investigation, not nearly as heavy or as expertise as what Chris brings in his normal guests uh, to this program. But my expertise started to go slightly to the left, if you will, toward the front end of cases, which was prevention. I became uh, adept, I guess I could say, at analyzing what happened, what went back in each transaction, each decision point, and and trying to really study and understand why the controls that were in place failed. Now, controls are, are two different pieces, and, and many of us understand this. It's the, it's the procedure, you know, two signatures on the document. But more important than that is what I always refer to as the soft controls. It was, what were the two people thinking about when they signed that document? Um, when Chris made reference to the fraud of the week, and this dean uh, who stole $1.8 million out of a New York City not, or New York not-for-profit I am immediately drawn to, well, well, wait a second, what failed that allowed her to do this? Yes, she had high-level or almost complete control over financials and, and, and journal entries and payments, but I'm guessing there was a board. I'm guessing there were other complaints over the years before the most recent one of a, of a, of a recipient on a grant didn't get it. I'm guessing that um, there was budget-to-actual analysis, at least to some degree, at the board level and and please tell us that there was somebody on the board with a financial background. This is the way my brain operates when I think about fraud, is where did we fail, and what were the lessons from that that we can take off into the future? So in this third piece of my career, um, the, the prevention consulting part, 
I take the accumulation of those lessons over the years, the ability to diagnose a case and what happened, uh, how it was detected, why it wasn't detected more quickly, where the humans failed in the equation, including in the, in the smaller not-for-profits at the board level, that's the compensating control, and convert that back into lessons done through training, done through education primarily, but also done through consulting. Um, that's the work I enjoy the most, is helping organizations, business owners, board members, not-for-profits, universities, governmental entities, including school districts, helping them make sure it never happens on their watch. Yeah, and that's uh, and that's critical. So uh, in, in that case, uh, you know, I'm I'm certain there was a board, and I'm certain, you know, and, and what we find, uh, I'm sh- sure you see this too, John. What we find with uh, nonprofits and religious organizations, organizations, often, you know, the board is consists of like-minded people. People are in t- people who support the cause, not necessarily yeah. people who understand finance. Correct, John. Exactly right. These are people who believe in the mission. So, for example, on a school board, it's local um, parents. It is other educators. It is the the attorney from town who wants to to have that that presence on the school board, and and for for whatever business or personal reasons, wants that exposure. Uh, it in a not for profit. It's generally driven to people who believe in the mission of the not for profit, the American Cancer Society, the, the the Red Cross, and these are great people. But somewhere in there. Just like the Sarbanes-Oxley Act dictates for public entities, for publicly traded entities, someone has to be the financial expert. So in a school district, you can have five local citizens with their varied backgrounds, but somebody better understand financials and know what questions to ask. In a not-for-profit, religious or other community service, mission-focused organization, again, you can have the people who really believe in the mission, whether it's adoption of children or blood supply for the local community, or the local church, or whatever it happens to be. But somebody on that board, because of the, the, the thin controls inside, and Miss Dean is an example of that, she was, uh, she was given responsibility for pretty much everything financial. There has to be a compensating person at the board level who knows how to ask the right questions. And that starts with a, a deep understanding of how funds throw, flow through an organization. So, Chris, in your example of the not-for-profit in New York, how the heck do you take $1.8 million out of a not-for-profit and not show, have it show up in um, decreased results by people who are supposedly receiving these grants? We're not getting grant reports. We're not getting the results of their work. How do you take $1.8 million in cash and not have it start to affect cash flow in the organization? And I know this was over a period of years, but it still begins to eat away at money available for other resources. And even if you wanted to go so deep, and this is why I like to see either a CPA or a very experienced internal auditor on these boards, um, how, can, how can she do this when somebody on the board who really understands debits and credits and how money flows through not just the financial statements but the operations, how can she be allowed to do this? And the answer normally falls back to, these are good people on these boards. Right, but they don't have that background, and, and so therefore they're set up for failure when when a key person decides to override her ethical and moral responsibilities for personal reasons. Um, there's no there's no fallback position there to catch her. Right, exactly. Uh, the um, you know in that case, 
I, I, like I said, I'm sure there are people that are all well-meaning, but uh, probably nobody uh, was asking the right questions. And when she's got control of everything, whatever she puts forward, you know, they're, and they t- they took implicitly. Uh, the and the the other aspect uh, is that uh, you know she. <clears throat> You know, she's doing this over a period of time. She's probably, if I had to guess, she probably wasn't booking uh, monies that were coming in, because right. she certainly wasn't booking them going out to the to the recipients. In some cases, at least. I mean, how do you hide 1.8 million dollars over that period of time uh, and not and not show uh, the financial stress on the organization? You are 100 percent right. And Chris, there's another one similar to this, very, very similar. As soon as you were describing the case, there was a case a few years ago in Austin, Texas, uh, called Family Connections. I'm talking five, six years ago, and listeners can can go to the Austin American Statesman uh, newspaper site. Um, and uh, Austin American Statesman, I can't remember what the site is. It's, it's Statesman.com or something like that. And look up just just Google anywhere Family Connections, Austin, Texas. And it's, it's such a parallel case to what this one did. Again, the, the executive director um, set up some side businesses, diverted, that looked like consultants for their not-for-profit. And these were consultants that were supposedly looking at program results of the not-for-profit and how well money was being used and for every dollar spent, what return on investment were we getting in terms of social services and service to our clients. Very similar parallel case to what you're talking about here. And she also created a fake CPA firm. Actually, she used a real firm, but a different city, and created fake financial statements and a fake audit report, which is absolutely amazing considering her understanding of not-for-profit accounting and the footnotes and such. That's not an easy thing to do. But she bankrupted the organization as well. Well, she didn't. New York didn't say it was bankrupt, but she in effect took this organization down because once it hit the street, that they were so out of control and there was no compensating controls, then people stopped donating money. So even yeah, if fraud if I, them down. Reputation. Yeah, if I remember correctly, the thing basically went belly up and it ceased operations altogether. You, you had uh, both the financial hit and then the the lack of incoming uh, funds from donors be- because of the you know reputation of a completely uh, uh, uncontrolled environment, and it just uh, just ceased to exist. I mean, how sad is that? No, it's very sad because the mission there was primarily to provide uh, referral services for. Parents seeking child care. So these were largely lower-income, single-parent families trying to get jobs and keep them needing a source of child care. This, this organization wasn't supplying the child care. They were, they were the, the central point of referrals, and they provided parent, parenting education uh, for you know, young couples and young individuals with, with babies suddenly appearing into their lives and such. This was unbelievably valuable social service that is now longer, no longer available because of the acts of one individual. And people are out of jobs, and uh, the community suffers. I mean, the da- the damage, the devastation, as I like to say, caused by a case like that is just it, it, the ripple effect is is incredible through through the community. Uh, John, I mean, this is it's just uh, it's it's hard to sometimes fathom how you know the the overall damage that something like this can can cause. Oh, absolutely, Chris. I, you know, I believe that people who commit wrongdoing and fraud should very much be held accountable. Now, I'm not trying to be in a vindictive way, but if you do the act, you should be responsible for paying the penalties for when that happens. But when someone rips off a mission-focused community organization, not-for-profit, providing, you know, baseline services to people in need, when they choose that target, whether it's the New York fraud you referred to or whether it's Austin, Texas, or hundreds of others, 
I believe there's a special place in the next life for people like that. And that place is very, very hot. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Uh, and sadly, uh, as we know, and listeners to this program know, uh, frauds against uh, nonprofits, religious organizations, small family-run businesses, because of the weak control stru- infrastructure, and we're going to get into this in the, in the next segment, we're going to talk about um, you know, why some of the controls, even when they're in place, they, don't, uh, they fail. Uh, we're going to go into that with John uh, in, in a bit. But but because of that weak infrastructure to begin with and other reasons, as we're going to get into, uh, these kinds of organizations, sadly, are victims every single day. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, all we need to do is, is go on the, the available government websites and search for the word fraud and 990s, the 990 tax filings, because when an organization's a nonprofit has a fraud, they must, they must give a summary of that in the 990s, and you will find thousands of cases. Fortunately, most of them small. Right. But still, every dollar taken in a nonprofit environment, I know that's where we're skewing this, this conversation because it's so important. Every dollar taken from a nonprofit is dollar not available for something better, something good. Uh, that sounds right. a little pie in the sky, but it's absolutely true. Well, it's absolutely true, and uh, we're going to have to take another break. When we come back uh, with John, we're going to talk about John's uh, uh, blueprint for anti-fraud uh, and prevention uh, work, and there's a whole uh, series of points. We're going to speak with John when we come back in two minutes. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Our highly competitive business world is fraught with risks and challenges. Critical business decisions must be made on a daily basis with precision when significant capital is at risk. When your organization is faced with a decision point involving opportunity and risk, consult with Marquet International, global experts in due diligence, investigations, and litigation support. Marquet International professionals assist organizations with vetting key individuals and businesses, as well as conducting sensitive employee or executive misconduct investigations. Our experts work with corporate counsel to develop facts and intelligence related to parties and circumstances in litigation, including conducting interviews, deep background investigations, and asset recovery inquiries. We are recognized in the area of fraud investigations, response and business controls consulting. When circumstances require sensitive and professional fact-finding, turn to Marquet International, world leaders in investigations and risk mitigation. Visit MarquetInternational.com or call 617-733-3304. Does your business, like many, face obstacles to becoming successful? Would you love to have an open forum of entrepreneurial ideas and best practices brought to you each week? Tune in for the second stage with hosts Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick. We'll spotlight entrepreneurs and growing companies that are creating a vibrant economic base, as well as addressing some of the obstacles that could be standing in the way of your success. Listen Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. 
You are tuned in to Fraud Talk with Chris Marquet. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to Chris at marquetinternational.com. That's C-H-R-I-S at M-A-R-Q-U-E-T international.com. Now, back to Fraud Talk. And welcome back, Fraud Talkers. Uh, My guest today is John Hall, who is an accountant by training and a fraud expert. Uh, He regularly speaks at uh, various groups uh, about fraud prevention and detection. And I want to get into that uh, right now, John. Uh, You put together uh, what you call the anti-fraud blueprint, and it's got a number of of points. The first one being, you know, uh, one, anti-fraud internal control infrastructure. Describe that. What do you mean by that? Well, Chris, thanks. My belief is that there are two pieces that need to be in place to prevent fraud or any other business problem, any other risk management issue. One is you've got to have the core infrastructure built in place. So in terms of anti-fraud, that is the core internal controls, for example, limiting access to the checking account, passwords on on systems, after-the-fact reconciliation of the checking account, budget to actual review. Those are all control infrastructure pieces. And as we were using our not-for-profit example, those those pieces are usually thin, that those layers of control are usually thin, whereas in a General Motors or, or a Microsoft, those, those layers of control are very robust simply because of the number of people. Um, the second piece, and you have to have that, even in the smallest organization. Somebody has to be double-checking details. And, and what we want is for people to think in terms of the control infrastructure, the most critical piece is at the moment a supervisor, a manager, or an executive has a pen in their hand and they are reviewing something, and their job is to initial it or or push it through, or sign off on a journal entry. That's what I call the anti-fraud moment. So you have to have the combination of the procedures, and you've got to have people who know what they're doing at that moment. So the control infrastructure is both procedures and awareness, skill set, paying attention to detail, competency at that moment of review and approval. Both of those pieces are necessary for controls to operate properly. And if I can, just one more point. What I find in my case studies, in my case work, is that about 90% of the organizations I deal with, and I'll stand by that number, it's not published, but I'll stand by it, about 90% of the time, the procedures were adequate. The humans failed. Right. In my experience. Right. No, I'm, I'm with you on that. Uh, absolutely. So uh, your second point is, Defining, you know, accept, acceptable and unacceptable behavior um, to within the organization. Talk about that. Okay, so so point number two on this on this fraud prevention blueprint or plan or system. Point number two is that people who work there know exactly what what the limits are of their behavior. So, for example, am I allowed to use the company's computer for personal purposes? Yes or no? I mean, I mean, this am is I a very yeah. John, this is a very simple point. I mean, it sounds it obvious, but 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 making defining what is right and wrong ha, needs to be done. Needs to be communicated. It needs to be reinforced. I mean, this is simple stuff. But I mean, if people don't know the rules, I mean, they're gonna they're gonna go around them, or they're gonna ignore them, or they're just you know gonna run rampant. Right, and often it's, especially in the smaller organizations, because it's not willful, it's not intent to deceive or to harm, it's this I didn't know. So here's an example. Am I allowed to have a vendor or supplier um, give me a Christmas gift or a holiday gift? With the holidays coming up right now, so any holiday gift. Am I allowed to accept a holiday gift? So what happens is a vendor, let's say a construction subcontractor or supplier, shows up at a construction company with a case of wine, 
or a box of cookies. Or And I see this all the time because I do a lot of construction auditing to this day. Are we allowed to accept that gift? Are we allowed to accept uh, a, a round of golf at the at the supplier's country club? Are we allowed to accept tickets to a Chicago Cubs game or a Denver Broncos game? And you know now we're getting into ticket value of a hundred dollars or more plus parking plus meals. You know what's what's the limit? How far am I allowed to go? And in government, honestly, often that limit is zero. I'm allowed to have lunch with someone, but we must each pick up our own check. So we, right. need to, we need to define. So we find this definition most often in the code of conduct or other employee ethics conduct statements. It seems, as you said, common sense, but um, my world tells me, and your world, Chris, I'm sure most of your listeners would say that common sense is not always common practice. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and I love that so- phrase. I love that <laughs> phrase. So your and your next point in the blueprint is leaders at all levels set a great example every day. So in other words, at top down, you know, if 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 we're firing the secretary for stealing money out of the petty cash, but we're quietly shuffling the CFO out beca- uh, after they've um, uh, manipulated the the financial statements, uh, that's not really setting a very good example. No, it's not. And and what we want, and here's two words for listeners to think about: I want visible, vocal leadership support for this. I want leaders who will stand up and not just say we're against fraud, but I want them to show by their own behavior that they're, where, where those limits are. And by the way, these 10 items are cumulative. So, for example, in number two, it was we state behavior. In number three, we have executives and all leaders live it, not just right. state it, live it. So, and okay, yeah, one more it, minor point here. When I talk about leaders, I'm not just talking about the C-suite. I'm talking about at the operating level, a supervisor. How does a supervisor treat their employees? How do they treat transactions? Do they pay attention uh, to, to all things that cross their path? And then the integrity and honesty in their own behavior. So I, I like to preach uh, tone at the top, of course. How about tone at the bottom? And how do we make sure that these two are in sync? So C-level suite, absolutely. And any supervisor who we look up to formally or informally, for example, of how to behave, is that consistent, visible, and both. Sure. Uh, it makes sense. Your fourth point is issue a policy on suspected misconduct, which in, in other words, to me, that means, you know, if you see something wrong, you got to report it. Exactly right. And Chris, if there's, we've got a bunch of these here, but this one, there's two of them that are, in my mind, absolutely critical. So even in the smallest organization, you have to have two of these in place. want to have as many as possible because they do have a cumulative effect. But I believe every organization needs to put in writing what we call this policy on suspected misconduct. And, and by the way, if listeners would like a sample of one, I've got one as a Word document. I'll send it right out to you. You just email me at john at johnhallspeaker.com, and I will send you a sample policy on suspected misconduct. No strings attached, nothing else. But why type it out if you don't need to? I'll send it to you as a Word document. Excellent. And it says a couple of things. It says, be aware of what can go wrong. Do your best to prevent it. Catch things right away, and doggone it, as you said, Chris, speak up when something doesn't look right to you. So this is, this is a call to arms. This is a recruit everybody into the anti-fraud effort document. Yeah, so it gets, this also gets into the, the point five, which is uh, you have the policy, but the requirement, the affirmative duty is to report it. Absolutely. When you suspect something in your area. 
So if you're in the Treasury Department, we expect you to know what can go wrong in Treasury, and we will help you learn that. We'll, you know, we, being the corporate organization, will sit down at staff meetings, we'll talk it through. Because if you're in Treasury and something doesn't look right in Treasury, you are in the best position to see it. Controllers, financial, the shipping department, people in that department, we want them to pay attention and remind them that because they are on the payroll, they have a fiduciary responsibility to speak up. This is not police state. This is a very balanced, nuanced message, but just a reminder, a nudge that says, hey, folks, you're the only ones who can save us and protect us here. Speak right. up when something doesn't look right, then we'll take over and find out whether there's something to it or not. Your affirmative duty to protect yourself, to protect the organization, which protects all of your coworkers. And the stakeholders, of course. Um, exactly. So the next point is identify, quanti- quantify, and track losses, which I think is fairly straightforward. Um, and then number seven, a comprehensive fraud exposure analysis. Um, again, uh, th- that's going into looking at uh, what, f- what, what exposures uh, the company perceives and un- making sure you understand exactly what they are. Exactly right. And six and seven there, that quantify losses and a comprehensive exposure analysis, they sort of go together. And these are more directed toward your larger organizations. But it's very simply to to answer the question, what can go wrong? What could go wrong? What could go wrong? And put it down in writing and then track whether it's happened. For example, what could go wrong is our inventory could be diverted. An employee could take it and sell it on the outside. Or a supplier could short us. What could go wrong? Well, we want to have measures in place to track whether that's happened. And the measures usually show up in book to physical differences. So when we have a significant or noticeable difference when we count the inventory. What can go wrong is we made a mistake or it was never here or it was here and somebody took it. And then we're now we're into uh, the third piece of how you handle fraud, which is follow-up on potential incidents. Right. So you, you go to, you've got the policy, uh, duty to report, you get the reporting, and then you must follow up on when you do have something reported. Uh, there's a fiduciary duty there, uh, not just a moral duty. Um, so your next point here is uh, in the blueprint that we've been discussing is um, fraud skills training. And we've got about a, a minute or so left, uh, John, so I, I don't want to cut you off, but uh, uh, talk. Talk about the uh, the training portion. I mean, who gets trained, and 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 how mu- how much training do they need, and, and where where do we go with that? Okay, so very quickly, Chris. Most people who come into an organization, most employees, do not have a background in fraud prevention. That's just a fact of life. Most board members don't have a background in it. So to fill in the gap that the policy and statements and controls require to be aware, suspected, and speak up, you got to teach them how to do it. We don't set people up for failure. So this is training that may be a half hour with the board and might be an hour with senior managers, and it might be a full day with first-level employees who are in key control positions and supervisors. But it's tailored to what they see in their work. Everybody needs it, with very few exceptions, perhaps, Chris, like people like you and the other guests on your show. Most employees, most uh, critical control people are asked to prevent fraud, and they don't know how to do it. We have to teach them. Right. So uh, we're going to take a break uh, right now. We're going to come back. We're going to continue here with uh, John's uh, uh, anti-fraud blueprints. Uh, there's 10 points to it. We're, we've gone through eight of them. We've got a couple more to go. And then we're going to also talk about uh, John has put together 10 reasons anti-fraud controls break down. And if we have time, we're going to go into some of his best practice suggestions. So we'll be back in two minutes.
Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Our highly competitive business world is fraught with risks and challenges. Critical business decisions must be made on a daily basis with precision when significant capital is at risk. When your organization is faced with a decision point involving opportunity and risk, consult with Marquet International, global experts in due diligence, investigations, and litigation support. Marquet International professionals assist organizations with vetting key individuals and businesses as well as conducting sensitive employee or executive misconduct investigations. Our experts work with corporate counsel to develop facts and intelligence related to parties and circumstances in litigation, including conducting interviews, deep background investigations, and asset recovery inquiries. We are recognized in the area of fraud investigations, response and business controls consulting. When circumstances require sensitive and professional fact-finding, turn to Marquet International, world leaders in investigations and risk mitigation. Visit MarquetInternational.com or call 617-733-3304. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to Fraud Talk with Chris Marquet. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to Chris at marquetinternational.com. That's C-H-R-I-S at M-A-R-Q-U-E-T international.com. Now, back to Fraud Talk. And welcome back, Fraud Talkers. Uh, my guest today is John Hall, who is a fraud prevention and detection expert uh, and uh, business controls uh, expert extraordinaire, uh, consulting with companies all over the, the country and indeed internationally on fraud prevention and controls consulting uh, arena. John, welcome back. Thanks, Chris. I really appreciate it. We've been talking about your 10 points in your blueprint for fraud prevention, and we got through about eight of them. The ninth one is auditors' employees look for fraud. Uh, and that, again, seems sort of obvious, but, uh, I mean, in my experience in, in, in talking about, you know, certainly a lot of these embezzlement-type cases, you know, the auditors aren't the ones finding the fraud. True? You're exactly right. You're absolutely right. Normally, in the statistics, again, I can't point to a specific source for this, but I just know from my own experience, about 90% of the time, maybe 80, 80 to 90, clearly, you know, the vast majority, are found by supervisors and managers and the occasional board members or a former vendor or um, an employee who steps in while somebody's on vacation. Um, that's how most of it's found. Now, auditors do find some. So I want to make sure they have a full skill set from CPA, so especially internal and governmental auditors. But the fact of the matter is they're limited by time, and employees are there every day. So we would expect that our employees 
are in the best position. Therefore, again, cumulatively with these 10 points, we want to tell them in policy that it's their job, remind them they have to speak up, they have a responsibility and a, an affirmative duty to do so, teach them with the skills, and then set them loose to pay attention. Not police state, not crazy Sherlock Holmes stuff. Just pay attention to the details that cross your desk every day. That's how most of it's found. Yeah, I mean, they're the first line of defense. First and last. So, and the, and the, your final point is fraud response in place, meaning have a plan, be prepared, because fraud happens. It, it happens in every organization, as I discussed in my mantra. You know, anytime in any organization, there's always somebody who's up to no good. And in this case, you know, since we know that's the case, people are whatever, whatever it is, they're taking money out of the till or they're stealing inventory out of the warehouse and then selling it, there's, uh, there, there, there's, there's got to be a response plan in place, correct? Exactly. This is just basic business risk management. You don't wait for the fire to start before you find out whether you have a local firehouse. You make sure those relationships and tools are there and available with a phone call should something go wrong. If you are blessed in a larger organization to have a security or audit or compliance department who knows how to handle fraud issues, I'm talking about investigate. So large retail chains have that. Then you're ready to go. But most smaller organizations, again, are not profit or are our smaller educational organizations, they don't have that on staff. So they better know who to pick up the phone to call. They want to think through in advance what's the message if people ask questions, how will we recover our losses. A critical one, what does our insurance coverage say about employee fidelity issues, and do we have a reporting responsibility of potential claims within a certain period of time. This is all basic risk management, but now related to fraud. And it all comes back to the common point of when the alarm goes off, are we ready to react? And you don't wait till that moment to consider what the implications are. You build it in advance, formally or informally. You know what the first steps are so that you can take them logically and calmly as soon as the alarm goes off. Exactly. Uh, well stated. So uh, let's go through it. You also put together, like I said, uh, 10 reasons anti-fraud controls break down. And when we discussed before, you know, 80, 90 percent of the time, it's the human element that is the at fault. It's not the technology. It's not the controls per se. It is the human element, which is the reason why uh, a fraud will occur. Um, and, and I think that that's reflected in these, these 10 points. Why don't, why don't you go, go through some of these here? Absolutely, Chris. Thank you. And to listeners, if you'd like to have a written copy of this list, plus the two-page anti-fraud blueprint or system, again, no strings attached. All you have to do is ask, and I'll be happy to send them out to you. So let me tell you the ten reasons I see, most common reasons. These can be a checklist, and you can ask yourself, how many of these do I have today? So I'll do them quickly, and you just kind of check them off in your mind. Do you have leaders, number one, who blindly trust everything that's put in front of them? Yes or no? Everything they see, they assume it's true. Two, you have people who willfully choose to not see problems. They don't see the control implications. They don't, uh, they don't see the behavioral indications of problems. Yes or no? Three, you have people that I call, and this is a strong term, situationally incompetent. And that incompetence is a, is a value-laden, emotion-laden word. But you have people who are not competent to know what to look for. That gets to our training. Yes or no? Or do you have people who don't have all the information they need to know what they're seeing is proper? For example, they approve invoices, but they've never seen the contract or the purchase order. Yes or no? Do you have five people who don't question strange, odd, and curious things on their watch? Yes or no? 
six. Do you have certain positions inside the business that are so busy with process, for example, data entry, that they don't have time to notice any of the details, yes or no? We call these process mentality positions. Important, but difficult to break the, the, the coma-like state some people get into as they process, yes or no? Seven. And just put yes for number seven. Do we have people who don't have enough time to do the control procedures? Of course. <laughs> Eight. Do you have managers and supervisors who just don't enforce the requirements, the documentation requirements, for example, of a, of, a, of a payment transaction? They don't require receipts, yes or no. Nine, do you have people who just say that's just the way it is and you just have to accept the situation? You can't fight City Hall. You're afraid. I'm, I'm above these rules. It's just the way it is, yes or no. And ten, and please, may no one have a yes answer for number ten. Do you have people in charge who intentionally ignore or override procedures for their own personal benefit. I hope you yeah. have number 10. So I'd be happy to send this list out to anybody who wants it. You just ask. And then you can use it as your own checklist and just say yes or no. Do we have these, yes or no? And any no answer or I'm not sure is a call to action. A call to action. Right. And again, all of these relate to hum- the human element of, of, of the equation here, which is, you know, 90% of the, of where the, where the problem occurs. You also, uh, yeah, and, and, and it's an, uh, it's a nice list. And frankly, uh, I'm sure, sure, you know, everybody listening, uh, would, would have to say yes to, to, to one or more of, of those points. I mean, it's just, it's a matter of, uh, you know, it's just, Every organization has has characters that uh, that fall into those categories. Right, right, Chris. And if I may, folks, folks listening, I, we gave you ten points in our blueprint or plan or system, and now ten reasons why this system breaks down. But just the final reminder is: now that we've gone through all this, these are cumulative. And to Chris's point, we may have one or two or five of these reasons why controls break down. And with each one, the situation gets worse. We may have one or two of the fraud prevention blueprint. These are the positive actions. But if we could put in place four or five or eight of them, not all ten, but four or five, or even two if we have none, the cumulative effect of these is like building a wall of protection with each brick that we stack into the wall. The situation gets better to protect you and your organizations and your clients. Right. So we're talking about risk factors. So the more the the higher number is just like diagnosing a, a you know a cancer patient or some other uh, pay, you know illness where you tick down the list of things. Do you have this? Do you have this? Do you have this? And you have t- you know out of the ten factors, maybe it's a mental illness uh, issue. Ten factors, uh, and you demonstrate five out of ten. You're at a much higher risk than somebody who de- demonstrates two out of the ten. Correct. You're, you are 100% right. One or two could still bring you down, but eight creates a higher probability of failure over time. The more you have, the more exposed that you are. And uh, and that's terrific. And we're going to have to cut short today. I was hoping that we're going to get into some of the, the best practices that uh, you like to talk about, John, uh, but we've simply run out of time. So I want to thank you, John, for, for joining us today. Uh, it's been a great discussion. Uh, people, go check out John at johnhallspeaker.com and uh, and uh, feel free to, to chat with him. Uh, the uh, 
we'd like you to join us next week again for Fraud Talk, which is 10 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, uh, where we're going to be talking about something a little bit different, and that is resume fraud. Uh, I wrote an article about 15 years ago called The Top 10 Resume Lies, and we're going to talk about that because uh, uh, so many uh, organizations hire people uh, who are uh, making misrepresentations that uh, uh, it sometimes comes back and bites you in the, in the tail. So I want to thank uh, John again. John, thank you for joining us, and thank you all for listening today. Thank you for listening to Fraud Talk this week. Please join Chris Marquet again next Monday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Don't become a victim of fraud. Tune in for another show soon. We'll be right back.